your charms right yes. for okay. these arms to surround. So I call to order the meeting of the Historic Preservation Commission for December 18, 2023. Uh, please stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Go ahead and do the roll call, please. Commissioner Link. Commissioner Roberts, absent. Commissioner Velez, here. Commissioner Vylander, absent. Vice Chair McDevitt, present. Chair Murray, here. And let's see, are there any general public comment? I have no speaker slips at this time. If there's any members joining us via Zoom that wish to speak, please raise your hand and I'll call on you momentarily. I have no hands raised. Okay. Are there any amendments or adjustments to the agenda? Chair Murray, there's not. Okay. Well, maybe? Okay. okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'll pop in here. You know I can't. I, I love it. <laughs> I just wanted, um, hi, Lisa Frosty, current planning manager. I just wanted to point out that we have our new clerk with us. I want to welcome Caitlin welcome. to the uh, Historic Preservation Commission and introduce her. Um, Caitlin's been with us for two months, and it's been a pretty um, adventurous two months. <laughs> Because she got to deal with the housing element issues oh, with planning commission. Well done. <laughs> um, so anyway, she is going to be clerking planning commission, design review board, and historic preservation. So she's going to be busy, and we're really, really, really happy to have her. Welcome. Thank so, you so anyway, much. Sorry I popped in. <laughs> so that's all I wanted to add. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, I guess we're ready for to uh, our first item on the agenda please make the announcement thank you chair mary murray and members of the commission um in terms of an administrative item uh, we'd like to discuss the 2024 calendar so um as most of you know the commission uh, meets every third monday of the month and taking a look at the calendar for 2024 there are three holidays that fall on the third monday of the month um the first one being January 15th, the second one being February 19th, and the last one being June 17th. Um, with that, um, you'll see in your staff report that uh, staff is proposing, you know, especially given the first two months of the year, um, there's holidays on our meeting dates. Staff's proposing um, for the commission to explore having a a meeting either Monday, January 29th or Tuesday, January 30th. Um, and this is just to serve as a meeting so the commission can meet um, within the first couple months. Um, and, you know, although meetings will be set through the end of the calendar year, um, we'll only have meetings if there, there's items to discuss, obviously. Um, and we will meet a minimum of at least six meetings per year. Um, and with that, that ends my presentation. Are there any questions from the commission? Um, I have a question. So on the 29th or 30th, do we have to make that decision now or will she send? Yes. We have to make that decision now? Yes. Okay. Uh, do you have any preference on the, for the January meeting, uh, either the January 29th, which is a Monday, and the 30th, a Tuesday, which one is better for you? Commissioner Link. I Can I make sure your guys' microphones are on just so we're getting it on the record? Okay. 
So Tuesday would be better for me, but I, I could make the 29th also. Uh, the 29th works for me. Thank you. And I'm flexible. Um, 29 is good for me, but I'm also flexible. Okay, great. Um, so you, the, the commission will have to make a decision um, whether it's going to be that Monday or Tuesday. And we'll hear from the other two. Oh, mm -hmm. it's yeah. So unfortunately, they're not not oh, they're this not evening. Counted. So oh, that's um, right. The commission will have to vote on which date that is. Okay, so I'll motion to make it the twenty ninth. Uh, yes, I. Can I take a roll call vote for you guys? Yeah, please. Okay, great. So um, what I'm hearing is that meeting will happen Monday, January 29th. And was there any other items for the rest of the calendar year that um, you had any questions about? Do those meeting dates seem fine to you? Mm. What will be the decide for June, June 17th, is it? Yeah, so June 17th, we, we just won't have a meeting that, okay. that month. Okay. You know, if there are applications we need to get to, we can always um, have a special meeting as well. Any other comments? I guess that's it. Can I hear a motion on that? Oh. Yeah, motion to have it on the 29th of January. Oh, and a motion to accept the full schedule. <laughs> Is there a second? Okay. I'll second that motion. All right. Roll call vote then. Commissioner Link? Agree. Commissioner Velez? Agree. Vice Chair McDevitt? Agree. Chair Murray? Yes, agree. Okay. All right. Moving on to the next item on the agenda, A2. Go ahead. Great. Thank you, Chair Murray, members of the commission. Um, this evening, we want to talk about our historical resources inventory um, and what that is and why we have it and why that's important to the city. Um, so part of Ordinance 22-10, the city council approved a historical resources inventory. And really what that inventory does, it consists of building structures, um, people um, that are associated with sites that are um, historic to the, to the city's history. Um, and there's certain criteria um, that the project has to meet in order to be on that inventory list. Um, I briefly want to go over these because I think it's important that, that we as staff and as commission know um, why we have this list and what uh, local historic resources are, are on there. So to be eligible, um, the des designation uh, must go through a historic resources survey um, or other evaluation to be conducted by a qualified preservation professional. Um, and in this case, the city historic resources inventory was done by the historic uh, resources group out of Pasadena. Um, they're the ones that did the context statement um, as well as the, the city landmark list. Um, other criteria are um, they must be listed and determined eligible for listing in the National Register of Historic Places or the California Register of Historical Resources, either individually or as a historic district. Also, they must be de designated as a County of Santa Barbara landmark or County of Santa Barbara Place of Historic Merit. And then lastly, are designated historic landmarks or contributors to, to designated historic districts by the City Council. Um, and in total, we have 29 historical resources that were identified and adopted by City Council. And this evening, we want to start discussing the city landmarks. Um, we have seven city landmarks that were approved by Council. 
And we really want to go into what is a city landmark and what are the seven within our city. And so what I'll do tonight is I'll present on the seven historic landmarks. Um, but feel free, this is very informal discussion. So I know there's a lot of knowledge up here with, with these city landmarks. So if you have anything to add or comment, feel free to interject. Um, I think that would be beneficial for everyone. Um, so as part, of, as part of Ordinance 22-10, which includes three exhibits, you have your contact statement. So I wish that would be really great if you haven't already is to read that. That gives kind of a brief overview and summary of the city and its history and how we've gone to this point. We have our city landmarks as well as, well as our historic resources inventory. And really the purpose of a historic landmark is to preserve and protect historic resources that once lost cannot be replaced or replicated. So what is a city landmark? Um, the city landmark uh, has to be at least 50 years old, must exhibit exceptional historical importance, and it must meet one of the following. It must be associated with important events or broad patterns of development that have made a significant contribution to the historical, archaeological, cultural, social, economic, aesthetic, engineering, or architectural development of the city, state, or the nation. Um, also is associated with persons of significant, that were significant in local, state, or, or national history. Uh, it embodies distinctive char characteristics of style, type, period, or method of construction, or as an example of the use of indigenous materials or craftsmanship, or it is a significant example of the work of a notable builder, designer, architect. And lastly, has yielded or has potential to yield information important to the history of or prehistory of the city, state, or nation. And it's also uh, historic landmarks must maintain those aspects of historic integrity that convey the reason for significance. So let's start with our first city landmark. We have the Daniel Hill Adobe. Um, some of you probably know where that is, and if you have not, it's actually very possible to uh, go take a look at it. There's currently a business in the building, but they're very open to having people come in and take a look. So it's located at 33 South La Patera Lane. Um, it was built in 1850, and it's really, I think there's two, two reasons why it's a city landmark and why it really holds important significance. One is obviously the adobe itself. It was the first adobe built in Goleta Valley by Daniel Hill. And Daniel Hill, if you don't know, um, he's been coined the person who named Goleta. So uh, um, he was the recipient of the La Goleta land grant. And um, he was the one that gave Goleta its name. And he gave it its name because, really because of the slough. Um, the slough was an important stopover for a lot of schooners that came into the slough for refuge from, from storms. It was also a place where um, they did a lot of ship repairs. And so that's why Daniel Hill named uh, it Goleta, and, and that name stuck. Um, again, it's a rare um, existing, lasting example of adobe construction. Um, Daniel Hill was one of the first uh, American settlers in the area as well. He landed at Refugio Point um, at the Refugio land grant and met a person there named Rafaela Ortega, which is the daughter of Don Ortega. Um, Daniel Hill really spent his time between Santa Barbara and Refugio Point, and this house here was his summer house. Um, let's see. So Daniel Hill became quite the businessman. Um, he, was a, he was a builder by trade. Um, you can also see his adobe in downtown Santa Barbara, which is still there on 11 East Carrillo. Um, but this was the place he really loved. This is where he spent the most time with Rafaela. Um, and it's still an amazing part of our history, and it's, the condition is unbelievable. Is there any uh, comments to add about the Daniel Hill House? I just want to add that in this commission, there is a descendant of the Daniel yeah. Hill, which is extraordinary. Yeah. So, whatever someday will happen. 
a tour of that house. It's yeah. just a lot to unpack. But we well, that would be wonderful. So <laughs> That's the only thing I know. Yeah. You know, I, I have a little story or, or um, something to share about this house. It's, you know, it's, it's quite um, extraordinary. Um, it's beautiful inside, and just the way it's been taken care of, it really touches my heart. So I mm. really want to thank the city for that a lot. Yeah. So. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, with that, let's move to the next one. So we have the Stowe House. So this is located at 304 North Los Caneros, built in 1873. Um, and so um, this is part, or was a part of the Los Caneros County Park. Um, and is currently, um, as you all have, have maybe been there, is open to the public uh, for tours. Um, so the Stowe House was built in 1872. It really resembles a Gothic revival style designed by architect Frank Walker. Uh, it's listed on the National Regis Register in association, in association with Edgar Whitney Stowe, a prominent agriculturist and horticulturist um, and ranch owner in Santa Barbara County. And he made significant contributions to the advancement of kind of the regional, regional overall agricultural um, industry in Santa Barbara County. He lived on the ranch from 1950 to 1949. There, he really established a, a really an international reputation for um, planting uh, lemon trees uh, and improving the productivity of those lemon trees. Uh, he was also instrumental in developing the agricultural cooperative movement in Santa Barbara County. And as a state senator, he represented the agricultural interest of independent farmers in Santa Barbara County. Um, and, and again, uh, not only is this, this landmark known for the time period of the Gothic Revival style, but also because of the association with, with Edgar, Edgar, Edgar Stowe. Uh, it's really an ex excellent remaining example of how agriculture was associated with our Kalita area. Any comments about the Stowe House? Um, yeah, I just want to add that, um, again, we're very fortunate that the Stowe family just celebrated their 150th anniversary, and they still farm above the ranch, all the 600 acres up there. So we're very lucky that they are still doing farming since 1872, multi-generational. That is a part of Galida that is really rare and also of California. Not too many, these ranches are still running by same family for generations and generations. So that's extremely special. Mm. The other one thing I wanna mention about Edgar Stowe is he was, when he was a senator and a legislature, he was really truly responsible for making sure that there was no taxes on food. That's one of his contributions for um, legislative contributions. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the family still farms? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Up there, 600 acres. They're mostly now avocados and mm. still some lemons and cattle. Wow. And they still have the buildings that were Edgar Stowe's lab that was moved over to the uh, uh, La Patera Ranch there and uh, as well as all the workers' buildings. It's one of the ranches that still have buildings for their workers. That's at La Patera Ranch? Yeah, La Patera Ranch, just right above their, uh, the Stowe House. Do you know if La Patera Ranch is open to the public? Do you, uh, you have to make an appointment. Okay. Uh, you can't drive there, but you can't really enter, but it's good to make an appointment. Mm. Um, uh, Zach Rizzo is the, the young yeah. manager now. He's. Uh, yeah, right. really wonderful. Well, thanks for the info on that. Uh, the next is the Sexton House, so lo located at 5490 Hollister Avenue, built in 1880. Uh, this is associated with Joseph Sexton, a local horticulturalist. And this is a rare, rare example of Italianate architecture designed by Peter Barber. Peter Barber was a local um, architect in the area, originally from San Francisco, 
Um, but he has a number of houses in the area of this specific style um, in Santa Barbara as well. Um, and the designation boundary on this property is the, the house, the pump house, the retaining wall and steps, the two pools, cistern, the sundial platforms, and some specimen trees and plants at the um, garden area adjacent to the front door of the entrance. Um, it's listed on the National Re Register for its association with Joseph Sexton. Um, he moved to California from Ohio. Um, and he bought his father's property, which was this property, for $2,200 in 1869. Um, and he's really known for establishing and creating the soft shell walnut. Um, and that inspired many local other farmers in the area to plant uh, walnuts as well. Um, more on Peter Barber. Um, he was really a, a, a mentee of a French architect, Prosper Haré, um, as well as architect Reuben Clark from Maine. And those are the architects that really modernized at that time the Italianate type of style that Peter Barber is now known for. Um, he spent, Peter Barber spent another 20 years in Santa Barbara after um, designing and building this home. And he has over 40 residential, commercial, and public buildings um, in this area. Any comments on the Sexton House? An another thing that he was known for was um, pampas grass. So there was a lot of, um, you see a lot of really cool pictures of Goleta. I mean, there's just acres and acres and acres of pampas grass. And I remember as a kid, I, my mom loved pampas grass. It was a really popular thing in the Victorian era to have pampas grass, and it started here. He's the one who started it. He brought it over, um, and I forgot where it originated, but he brought it over, China. started planting it. China. China. Started planting it here, and it just took off. So that popularity in Europe started here in Goleta, which is really kind of cool. So it was a very popular Victorian decorative, dry um, floral to have in your house uh, because it could stay looking the same for a long period of time. So that's really kind of neat um, that it started here in Goleta. And then um, his father had property off of Montecito Street, Montecito and Castillo. And when Winchester, Dr. Winchester, was building his house or his adobe, in Santa Barbara, he stayed at their home for a period of time. So, um, so they started in Santa Barbara before they came out to Goleta. But yeah, and he's also, <laughs> I think he might be the first lawsuit that was won against the city of Santa Barbara. So back when they drew the lines for for um, Salisbury Haley, um, used rawhide to survey and to set. The um, uh, the streets um, that were that you see on the Wackenruder map in the city of Santa Barbara, mm -hmm. and because he used rawhide, they were not very accurate. And so there's several pieces, especially when they're actually trying. You know, they had the map, and then they had to build the, the streets. And there were several people that had homes and places that they, you know, they lost the front part of their property, and one of them was Sexton his father, and he sued the um, city and won. So anyway, just a little yeah. bit of no, that's fascinating. <laughs> wow. yeah. history. Yeah. The one addition is the pampas grass was used uh, all over Europe for, uh, uh, for decorating horses and parades mm -hmm. and for the, uh, the high royalty plumes. Right. So, you know, it was just like Goleta right all over uh, Europe. Mm -hmm. The other thing I want to mention about this house is... Uh, it has uh, the very first standing uh, metal roof, standing seam metal roof. At the time, it was like the rage. Only the really wealthy can put that roof on. And 
the sections were able to put the roof on. That's why it had really been preserved well because the roof has not been able being changed mm -hmm. that much. So just want to mention that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you all. That's it. Uh, the next is Glita Depot. So currently located at 300 North Los Caneros um, in the city's Lake Los Caneros Park. Um, built in 1901, originally on the end of Kellogg Avenue, adjacent to the train tracks at that time, uh, is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Obviously, this is really important um, piece of architecture based on, at that time, the Southern Pacific Railroad was building what they call, you know, really conventional type um, uh, depots, uh, you know, standard um, frame construction um, that really were scattered along the whole, what they call the coastline of the Southern Pacific Railway. Um, and you know, around the same time in, in uh, early 1900 and in late 1901, they were trying to finish the entire coast, coast link, as they called it. Um, however, they had a, what they called a long, unfinished stretch um, within the confines of Santa Barbara County, um, and they called it the Gap. Um, which at that time, the Southern Pacific engineers um, and crews would eventually conquer and finish that gap. Um, and, you know, it's unfortunate, but Galita Depot is the only surviving uh, depot left on that, on that, that coast link. Um, all the others were, were demolished. Um, but it didn't come out, didn't come with, you know, some controversy. There was a point where we thought we'd, we would have lost the depot um, in the 1970s. So um, once, the, once there wasn't a need for that type of building um, anymore, um, the Kellogg family and the Southern Pacific Railway wanted to demolish the building. Um, and the Kellogg family as well as Southern Pacific, um, donated the building actually to the to the county at that time. Uh, they had trouble finding spots for it, um, but luckily, um, Glita Beautiful, a local nonprofit in the area, found a spot for it, and um, an acre of land as well as the building were were given to Glita Beautiful for uh, Lake Los Caneros. Um, it's the oldest existing commercial building in Goleta. Um, like some of the other railroad companies, um, Southern Pacific used the standard design. However, you could tweak the design. So if you look up and down the coast, there are some that have two stories, there are some that have one stories. Um, and you know, at the, this is the last remaining one, but um, the other one was in Lompoc, a, a surf. Um, that was, was the latest that was unfortunately uh, demolished. Um, so this is a really, really important building, not only because of the style of architecture, um, but really is a standing a model of how the transportation industry came to Goleta. You know, the train tracks were really important in the train as well as delivering goods. Um, and we're really fortunate to have this building. Any comments on the on the Glita Depot? I just have one comment. Um, you know, it, it's a very beautiful um, uh, style of a uh, uh, train depot style. And if you've never been over there, it's it has a cute little gift shop, and it's really really cute. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and the, in, in the second story, that was for, that was living quarters for the, the, the train station uh, controller. Mm -hmm. So, the, the, so uh, the building was relocated in 1981. They finished the, the remodel and uh, built the foundation. Um, and if you haven't been, I, I would highly recommend it. 
My, uh, my two-year-old loves it there. <laughs> uh, so let's move on to Bishop Ranch. So um, Bishop Ranch, originally part of the Los Dos Pablos um, land grant. Um, and that was owned by Nicholas Den. Nicholas Den uh, was an Irishman, came from Ireland. Um, his goal was, um, so his story is came from Ireland. He actually had to dr drop out of med school his last semester um, because of financial reasons. And he came to California originally to Monterey to work for a cousin of his. Um, and then he made his way way down south. His his real kind of goal was to be a, a ranchero. Um, and um, and he had a wife named Rosa, and he had uh, ten children. Um, so he was landed to the land in 1849, and he died in 1869. Um, and at that point in his will, um, the land was to be subdivided into smaller parcels uh, for his heirs and his children. Um, however, I guess there's some foreshadowing with that. That, that didn't exactly occur um, how it was supposed to. Um, and in the late 1860s, um, the executor of his will um, sold the property. However, the property didn't go through through Santa Barbara County Probate Court, um, but he had a very eager and willing buyer, and that was uh, William Hollister. And William Hollister, this was his dream to own this, this lot and this ranch. Um, Hollister offered $10 an acre for 5,000 acres of the former Den Estate, and that was bisected by Tico Latido Creek between the east ridge of Elwood Canyon and uh, Caneros Creek. Um, and he took um, immediate possession of it and called it Glen Annie. Uh, Glen Annie Ranch, uh, Annie was his wife. Um, and Hollister uh, built two really beautiful homes and mansions on the property. Uh, the first mansion was built for him and his wife. Uh, however, um, his sister, Lucille, was also um, living with the, with the family. Uh, however, it was clear to, to William Hollister that the, his wife and sister could not uh, live together. And so he built a second mansion uh, just, for, just for Annie. Um, however, by this time, and, and he used it as, as a really a, a ranch, working farm, farming, uh, farm and cattle ranch. Um, but by the early, mid to late 1870s, um, the purchase of that land was, was contested um, with the fact that it wasn't, uh, didn't go through probate court and the will was not adhered to. Um, the legal, legal battle went 14 years, and really this is the first time we see that um, the, the length and intensity of the legal bat battle led to, to Hollister's health uh, declining, um, and eventually William Hollister died. Uh, the Den family did win the, win the court case and um, did retain the, the property, however, um, the day before the Dens were to take ownership of the ranch, the two mansions were, uh, they caught on fire um, and were destroyed. Uh, allegedly, um, it's recorded and documented that uh, Anne, Anne, who is William Hollister's wife, said Den will never set uh, foot in one of these houses, um, and um, the, the houses were torched, um, but there's no proof that uh, that Ant did it. Um, so why is it called Bishop Ranch? Um, so during the, the court case, uh, the De Den family, they 
um, contracted with an attorney. Um, and named Thomas Bishop. Um, and this part of the deal for compensation of the, of the, of the case, if he won, he was gonna receive um, payment um, in ownership of, of half the ranch. Um, and the Bishop family, they kept it until the 1950s. And then in 1957, it was bought, bought by a Chicago financier. Um, and two years later, the Crown Exchange Building Corporation um, hired an architect to design a, a planned community there. Um, interesting enough, it's still owned by the, you know, the same 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 company um, that purchased it in 1957, um, and we have obviously seen some. Uh, attempts to convert the land use designation, which is agricultural, to other land use designations. Uh, the, er, the, the most recent being in 2011 and 2012, uh, uh, there was a general plan amendment to change the land use of that parcel um, and build commercial and residential and new um, subdivision track, a golf course. Um, and it went to city council for decision. And, uh, <clears throat> At that time, council decided not to uh, approve the general plan amendment. Um, and that was really, you know, a lot of hard work from the, the community members of the city of Lita to um, make that happen. And fortunately today, you know, in terms of a, a land use change to any other land use besides agricultural, it'd have to go through a, a referendum, a vote by the people to change that land use. Um, and so we're really fortunate to, to have this here in a way it's, at least for me, I really find it, you know, really the symbolic identity of, you know, agricultural in this community and, and uh, produce and ranching and, and farming. Um, and we're really fortunate to have it. Is there anything to add or comments? I'd, I'd love to hear them. I have some questions. So um, you have a, a designation map of the, and is it, what is the parcel? Is this where the... What's it, the land use designation? The, yeah, no, the, not the land use, the landmark, um, boundary. the boundary. Oh, the boundary. Landmark boundary. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. Is, is part of the, yeah, I have a stuff report here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, it encompasses, you know, Highway 101, Cathedral Oaks, Los Caneros, and Glen Annie. So that's the whole landmark? That, no, <clears throat> that's the boundary of the parcel, what Daryl just described. The, um, landmark. the landmark is the one-story bungalow, the sandstone arbor, the red gum tree located northeast of the dwelling, and the surrounding specimen oh, trees. So it's, a, it's very, it, yeah, what's designated as a historic landmark is not the entire parcel. Right. It's just a small component. Right, got it. Yeah. However, to change that land use, it would be the entire parcel. Yeah, if correct. somebody yeah. wanted to change, yes, it'd be subject to Measure G and, yeah. yeah. But if you're just looking at what's historically designated on the property, you then look it's just those items. Mm -hmm. Not the whole property was not designated mm -hmm. as a historic landmark, just those items. When, although I think that that was a temporary site. Uh, Has anyone been out there? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I have been a long time ago, but it, it's kind of hard to get access to it, isn't yeah. it? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Great. Um, let's go on to the next one. The Barnsdale Rio Grande gas station. Um, so this is located at 7825 Hollister Avenue, um, right on Hollister Avenue, adjacent to uh, Sandpiper Golf Course. Um, previously designated as a landmark by the county, built in 1927. And this is a really great example of Lita's history uh, with oil. Um, 
The design is Spanish colonial revival style by Masters Architects Morgan, Walls, and Clements for the Barnsdale Rio Grande Oil Company in 1929. And is a real example of 1920s development related to the oil industry in Goleta. So oil played a really significant role in Goleta's history. Um, currently, at that time, the El Elwood Oil Preserve um, a lot of oil was being extracted from that site. And so that site was also originally owned by the Dens as part of uh, Los Pobos Ranch. And however, in 1920, the daughter, uh, Kate Bell, excuse me, Kate Den Bell, daughter of Nicholas Den, noted at a family gathering at Elwood Terrace, which is present day uh, Sandpiper Golf Course that oil would be struck on this property um, and that that would occur um, once the children, um, uh, that would occur after she passes away. Um, so there'd be no um, higher inheritance taxes for her children. So in the late 1920s, so in the late 1920s um, a geologist by the name of Frank Morgan, uh, he was commissioned by the Den family to take a look, um, and you know, there's one of these famous sayings, and you can see still see the plants from from the beach there. Actually, there's a, a patch of cactus, and um, Kate Den Bell said, you know, this is where the oil is under under that cactus patch, um, and so adjacent to there, that's where they they struck the first well. Uh, they had issues the first several days of obtaining oil, but once they, th they hit 3,000 feet, um, they found an oil gusher, and really the rest is history. Um, that site uh, contained 28 wells at one point. Um, and just to you know put that in perspective, um, by 1930, the Elwood oil field was home to 28 oil wells, netting about 42,000 barrels of oil per week, or 15,000 barrels per well. Um, and this was really the beginning of Glida's burgeoning oil industry. So other landowners also started to strike for oil. Um, and then you start to see, you know, little buildings pop up, uh, you know, townships and buildings and services. Um, and that's really when the Barnsdale Rio Grande Gas Station Company decided to build this gas station really as a sh sh showcase to their oil development in the area. Um, and it was a strategic spot. It was along the western approach of Glita Val Valley. Um, was an ideal location for a filling station. Um, and it opened in 1929. And almost overnight, um, along with the, with the oil wells they had, also with this gas station, um, Barnstow Rio Grande Oil Company became a major player on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, it's really a, a style of Spanish colonial revival style. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. Uh, not much has really happened with this building or parcel um, uh, since then. Um, currently owned by uh, the owners of the Sandpiper Golf Course. There has been some history, uh, you know, 2015, 16, and 17, with the city tr um, trying to either acquire or have the land and building donated to them um, with, with, no, with uh, no resolution. Um, and now we actually do have a, an application on file with the city. Um, and at some point, the commission will see that. And um, and I can just briefly, you know, it is a public uh, application. I can briefly talk briefly about the um, of what we're seeing. Um, it'd be kind of a retrofit uh, to add a, a cafe um, and kind of restaurant to the building uh, with an addition as well as a, a patio cover overhang. Uh, would not be obviously a gas station. It'd be more of a of a cafe. Also, is really geared towards um, uh, bicyclists, and they'd have um, air pressure pumps and, and water, 
and they would um, instead of you know gas pumps, they'd have um, kind of air pumps that would be made to look like that. But really, that's the first application we've seen in a long time uh, for anything to do with the property. Um, with that, any comments or questions? Or? I have comments and questions. So I'm really glad to hear you say there's some kind of application because this is not being taken care of, this landmark. And our ordinance says that if you own a landmark, you should maintain it or else you have to be penalized or some kind of a city action to say, to take it seriously and say, you cannot let a landmark be demolished by neglect. And this has been the cry of the community forever. So I am glad to see that they're coming up with something. But I also would recommend that the city takes a stronger stand to say this is our ordinance and this uh, uh, demolition by neglect should come to an end. Uh, really, seriously. This, this building is really more of a Moorish style architecture that is extremely rare and incredible. In fact, if you look at that tower, that's the same kind of architecture element that was used as the beautiful mosque up mm -hmm. on, on, uh, on Los Carneros. And the elements from this building has just really beautiful. And, and um, so I'm just really continue to uh, encourage the city and the public to really get on behind our ordinance. For a long time, we couldn't do anything because we had no ordinance. Well, now we do and let's really, really put it to test. And so if they've got an application, let's bring it to the table and give us a timeline, and this is gonna be the first on the agenda for your project. Really, this is, this is, how, this is how ordinance work. And, and unless you wanna be penalized, who wants to penalize someone? Nobody. No. So I, I, I just, that's my, this is my long <laughs> no thank you for your comments uh, long a plea with the city and the mm -hmm. community i would expect that the commission will this item come before the commission obviously in the new year um march april it's, it's hard to say but will come before all of you any other comments about all I know is that there has been a, just a really strong cry in the community um, for just the, you know, uh, restoration and, and see any updates. Um, that's all I have to comment. Great. Let's move on to the next one, which is the Schrode Packing House. Uh, so the Schrode, Schrode Packing House uh, is located at 26 South Lapateria Road. So if you go down, go down Lapateria to the end, it's on the right. Um, uh, unfortunately, you know, a majority of it was demolished um, around 2001. However, um, there's a portion of the packing house that still exists. It's currently um, has a commercial business in it. Um, it's really significant because of the association with the area's agricultural, um, but specifically because of the dry farming technique that the Schrode family and company um, really invented. Uh, and the one pr produce they really specialized in was um, dry tomatoes. So that, that really means there was no uh, irrigation associated with with uh, growing the tomatoes. Um, and this really became a, a mainstay produce of the area. So um, over 2,000 acres of tomatoes were grown on far farmable land between uh, really Carpentria and Gaviota, but was all centered here at the Schrode Packing House. Um, the tomato business quickly became a major employer between June and September. Um, and provided year-round employment for several hundred farm workers who worked in the fields and in the packing house. Uh, in 1944, the Schrodes formed the Schrode Nelson Produce Company to pack and ship tomatoes really nationwide. Um, but because of you know shipping long distances, 
Um, this is why they developed um, the dry packing house. Um, and they found that uh, tomatoes would not really become that um, perishable uh, through long lengths of transportation. Um, And another reason why I was stationed there was obviously for transportation for the Southern Pacific Railroad. Um, and any questions about the Schroeder Packing House or any comments or anything to add? Uh, the owner will, the owner and tenant of the building will let you walk inside. Okay. I was able to get in there last week. Uh, flooring's still the same, the rafters are still the same. Um, so yeah, if you have a chance, you know, feel free to go by. With that, that ends my presentation. But uh, happy to have any discussion or any question regarding those items. I wonder if there's any comment from the public about anything. I have no speaker slips on this item, and there's no members of the public joining us via okay. Zoom. Oh, shucks. <laughs> Any comments or questions from the commission? I have one question. Um, was this packing house just specialized in tomatoes, but it also specialized in lemons as well? I thought I heard. Yeah, so it specialized in tomatoes, but they had other produce. Yeah. So they would transport, a, they would pack a lot of different fruits here, like walnuts and lemons, and then transport it. But um, it's really known for the packing house and for that specific technique of dry frying. All right. Um, with move to the next item. Secretary's comments, any comments from? Um, yeah, so the next meeting will be obviously Monday, January 29th. Uh, and for that meeting, uh, we'd like to continue discussing the historical resource inventory and, and other properties. Um, so we will do that. Um, at this time, in ter terms of applications, we don't have anything um, ready to go to commission at that meeting. Uh, but we do foresee um, some coming early in the new year, either February or March. Um, one item we do want to bring forward as soon as it's ready to be brought forward is just a, a presentation by our um, General Services Department about the, the current um, retrofitting in entrance and ADA work going on at the community center. Um, so that will be brought forward at that time. Um, and those are all the comments I have. Are there any commissioner comments? I, I, I have uh, comments, and this is will probably be for um, next, next month. I think we're having trouble hearing you as oh, your microphone. Okay. It's on. Okay. Yeah. So for um, next month, when we talk about the uh, historic uh, uh, inventory list, um, I know I've talked to you about um, other resources that were identified. They are in in our um, um, historical context statement. And what I wanted to ask is, I was going through them. They were not surveyed by the the historic resources group, you know, Christine Lazar. Um, but Lazaretto, thank you. Uh, but they were identified as either being, they were either identified in previous phase one, phase two studies, or some other surveys, or some. In other words, they were on that list, uh, especially with for Old Town uh, and. I would like to really study those and uh, bring them forward 
and a proposal to add them to the inventory list. Yeah, I think a lot of them are not on the inventory list, and so when something goes to the design review board for review, <laughs> they just don't treat them as historic resources, even though they are. And one one example is the um, the the old town. I mean, uh, the restaurant in Old Town that went through with the new new painting, the orange painting there on the former Bank of America building post office. So anyway, that's what I will be bringing, or I hope to get it to you before the meeting. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, thank you for that comment. Um, and so the ordinance does have uh, criteria how to establish and bring forward a potential item mm -hmm. to be put on the list. And I think <coughs> what would be beneficial, at least for staff, would be to maybe go and have an item uh, possibly in, in January, if we can, is is to go, go over that criteria of the yeah. ordinance and and the process and mm -hmm. the process because yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a submittal process there's yeah and the criteria and yes yeah yeah I think, I think what's yeah what was confusing was they need the then the criteria then the the pro the new process has to be done. But what do you do with the stuff that were not included in the new process? Yeah. And anyway, you'll, you'll sort it out. Yeah, I mean, what yeah. the idea is with the process is the items that were not included on the initial historic resources inventory, that they would, somebody would nominate them. They would be evaluated, you know, we there's a whole, anyway, we staff would review them. Then it would come here to the Historic Preservation Commission for, um, consideration and a recommendation and then your recommendation would go on to city council and city council would make the decision whether or not to add them to the historic resources inventory if they met the criteria yeah. um, and that and there's time limits set in there like I think it's 180 days that the council would have from the start of the process to when council action it's 180 days and if for some reason we couldn't get it on, you know, if agendas just didn't work out, then um, it does, it's, they'd have to start over, but it's not like it's denied. It's not like there's a time limit by which something would have to be delayed, but that we can go over that process more in detail. I, I have another technical question. Um, so if I were to do it, I'm, I am um, assuming well, I'm expecting, obviously, that I would be recused from the commission. Could I do this as an, an, a citizen? I think that's a question we'd have to work through with the city attorney. Okay. All right. Um, because, yeah, I, don't I mean, I, I, I was going to recruit a friend to do it, but that's a lie. I'm doing it. And I can't tell a friend to just bring it over. This is ridiculous. I mean, you have to be honest. So I was going to do it. I have all the information anyway because I, I did a lot of those surveys. So um, I want to be a straight and, and up above board. So that's why I'm asking. And you'll help me. You'll yes. help us. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll look into that question with yeah. the city attorney's office and yeah. let you know. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's it for me. Anything else? No, I don't have anything else, but just want to wish you guys a happy holidays. Yeah. Oh. I was going to say one thing. I do think um, uh, Chair Murray definitely brings up a good point, and it, you probably were already thinking about talking about this, but what are the limitations of those that are commissioners? Uh, what our role is as commissioners? Um, and that we're, you know, careful because obviously we're involved here because we're all passionate about preservation, but we also have limitations. Otherwise, there's a conflict. So, um, I definitely think that it would be good to to have that outlined properly. Thanks. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah. <laughs> Impeccable timing. Well, with that, if, if you want, you can go to the next item, Chair Murray. That, that uh, happens to be adjournments, I know. Yeah, I know but I, uh, if there's any other, um, there any comments? other comments. 
We are about to adjourn. 5.30? You must have, you have finals for brain, right? <laughs> Yeah, we moved to adjourn the meeting today.